0: Gradient. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Ms. Wanda Skowonska on the topic Mythbusting the False Theology. This October 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures it's at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Wanda Skovanska is a school counsellor and a registered psychologist. I for the warm welcome and um, uh, hello, my friends in Christ. I don't have any great claims to be a theologian or a great uh, um, sort of um, a ca- a counter of all of these things, but um, I have got an enthusiasm for the writings of Pope Benedict XVI because while we were all um, taken along with the writings of Pope John Paul II, which we all love, there was this other um, theological writer in the background who... People tended to overlook a little because of uh, the writings of Pope John Paul II. Um, they both complement each other; they're very much, um, you know, with each other. And my real interest was, as I read Pope Benedict's work, was how he was an extraordinary fighter, not with guns not like a panzer cardinal, as people call him, not the (laughs) rottweiler, you know, and uh, nor is he the quiet German shepherd either. He's really a fighter uh, in the most extraordinary sense. And from his earliest years, he was born into the most intense ideological conflict. When he was born as Joseph Alwa Ratzinger, 16th of April 1927, at 11, Schulstrasse in am Inn, in Bavaria in southern Germany. He was the third and youngest child of Joseph Ratzinger Sr. and Maria Ratzinger, nay Riga. The Nazi party was growing from strength to strength. Communism, not far away, had taken firm control over Russia and was killing people by the million in the Ukraine and Bielorussia and in Russia. In his childhood years, the young Joseph, who had an intense love of his family, his close-knit family, had the witness of his father's very strong resistance to Nazism. Now you imagine the scene. I mean, he lived through it all. The 1930s, he had the lot, the marching people, the the Heil Hitlers and so on. And his father, of all things, serves in the Bavarian State Police, the Landespolizei. And uh, he also served in the regular police, the Ordnungspolizei, before retiring in 1937 to the town of Traunstein. And if I'm not mistaken, the retirement was that he really could not survive any longer doing the work he did in the current regime. Um, the Sunday Times described the older Ratzinger as an anti Nazi whose attempts to rein in Hitler's brown sh- shirts forced the family to move several times according to the um, International Herald Tribune, uh, Tribune, these relocations were directly located to Ratzinger Sr.'s continued resistance to Nazism, which resulted in a lot of demotions in his work. Um, George Ratzinger, the brother of the current Pope, said our father was a bitter enemy of Nazism because he believed it was in conflict with our faith. Uh, what a situation to be born in from your tender young years. When Ratzinger turned 14 in 1941, he was forced into the Hitler Youth Membership, which was legally required from 1938. You didn't have to go and sign. You were just automatically a member. Um, According to the National Catholic Reporter, correspondent and biographer John Allen, Ratzinger was a very unenthusiastic Member who missed meetings he was a bit of a truant, and you know, um, and sometimes just refused to attend. In 1943, when he was 16, he was drafted with many of his classmates into this anti-artillery corps. They were posted first to Lugwitzfeld, north of Munich, as part of a detachment responsible for guarding some uh, b aircraft at an engine plant. He was sent to various other places involved with telephone communications and uh, after 1944 he uh, I think he ran away from that post as I read it and then he was then caught up with again at home and he was sent up to the border of Hungary which was occupied by the Red Army so he was kind of in the Hitler Youth and with the Allies on the other side and now he's up against the might of the um, Russian Army although the Russian Army I guess yeah they were part of the Allies but what allies history has shown since then. Um, so on November 20th, 1944, Pope Benedict's unit was released from service and then Ratzinger again turns home. Then again he's drafted into the German army at Munich and is assigned to infantry barracks in the centre of Traunstein and the city uh, near which the Pope's uh, family lived at the time. And then he was to be sent to the front to be a frontline soldier to fight the communists, but this never eventuated. Now, um, he was actually arrested by the Americans at the end of the war and held, I think, for three weeks in a prisoner of war camp, then released. Now, Joseph um, Ratzinger, the junior, did not fight head-on in physical wars. He entered the seminary, and in taking on the work he took, the parish work and the, uh, the university teaching, he actually took on a lifetime of fighting theological errors and confusions. This was the era of uh, the the flourishing of the uni of Tübingen and all its uh, errors on the historical Christ. And he was very long, intelligent, um, and persistent and courageous in these fights. In the theological highlights of Vatican II, Pope Benedict said, as the young father Ratzinger, in his opening speech... For the second session, after Pope John Paul XXIII had died um, and uh, Pope Paul VI opened the next session, he said, what most impressed me, he was recalling at the time, how Christ-centred it was. The words of the liturgy, te Christe solum novimus, only you Christ do we know, were especially stressed reference to Christ as the only mediator, as the hope that guides our vision and our work, carried strong conviction. Now, they were the things that struck him most about the opening of the council. And so my talk's going to focus on his Christology because I believe that is the consistent thread throughout Pope's benefits writing. A lot of people will draw issue with other things he's said and I'll say, oh, this doesn't seem right, that doesn't seem right. But the most persistent And I believe unassailable kernel of his writing is his Christology of all the different theology, the theologies he writes about. Um, Now, Ratzinger wrote that commentary on um, Vatican II, the theological highlights, in 1966. And that was on the first part, his commentary, of Gaudium and Spades, a book which has caused a lot of controversy since then. And even in 1966, he saw the heretical and ideological dangers. He actually criticised much of it for being Pelagian, right? Sitting the, seeing the city of man without seeing it as the city of God. And uh, by contrast with this Pelagian aspect of bringing up the church as a, as a city of man rather than a city of God, he praises Article 22, that is, he who is the image of the invisible God is himself the perfect man, which was quoting from Colossians 1, 15, he praises Article 22 for its complete Christocentric theology. And that's where he stood, you see. Um, And he then takes that on right throughout, I believe, his uh, thinking and his academic writing and his, uh, his life as Cardinal and Pope. So in retrospect... This incident encapsulates some of the primary emphases of his theology. You know, whether he's writing about the liturgy or ecclesiology, the crisis of cultures or of scripture, or you know, he's got an acute uh, perception of ideological distortion, distortions about the about Christ, about the writings on Christ. Now, of course, you'd say, of course, you expect a pope to write about Christ. I mean, that's the part of the church, surely. But what distinguishes Benedict's Christology, especially in some books that I have here, and I'm sure you've come across um, Jesus of Nazareth and some of the other books that he has written. There's um, The Nature of mis- Mission of Theology, um, Truth and Tolerance, and uh, this introduction to Christianity, which has a superb introduction, which has got a marvellous critique of Marxism. It's um, you know really great to read, and... Christianity and the Crisis of Cultures, um, which is um, also a marvellous work of his. If you haven't read a lot of his work it's good to start with some of these shorter ones because you get an idea of the clear, sober um, explanatory style that he has. But what's clear in all those works is the lucidity, the contemporaneity. and It's really a good kind of a meditation exercise because it slows you right down because it takes you in a very slow step-by-step movement throughout uh, Theology, and he does what I call theo-ideological myth-busting, this holy myth-busting. He myth-busts and deconstructs the post-Christian, post-metaphysical context. He says, if you can do it to us, we can do it to you. And he's right. And uh, he owes a lot in his critique to Romano Guardini, who wrote books about Christ. He wrote this one called The Lord. He also was very influenced by Carl Adam, and uh, he also read works by Franz Michael and Giovanni Papini. His works I haven't read, but apparently he was greatly influenced by them. And he constantly tried to find the the, the bedrock of um, Christological truth in the church and tried to find the distortions. Because he saw that in the 20th century, they were exploding. He, Gardini had said, Our minds, dulled by everything said and written on the subject, can no longer comprehend the passion with which, for centuries, the early Christians fought out the issues of Christology, and Benedict took that very much to heart, and he wanted a fresh, new, daring way to speak about Christ, as the Amargo Day, um, you know, and he, and man, sorry, as the Imago Day during and after Vatican II. Now, as Tracy Rowland, who's recently written a kind of a commentary on um, on uh, Pope, the Pope's uh, faith, has said. For Ratzinger, the whole point of Gaudium et Spes, correctly interpreted, is that a daring, new, Christocentric theological anthropology is the medicine the world needs. The world is culturally sick, and it's the responsibility of the Church to administer this. He is critical of interpretations which transform Christianity in what he provocatively calls a poorly managed haberdashery that is always trying to lure more customers. Now, Benedict's daring new approach took scholarly distortions head on. He said they bleached out the image of Jesus. He wanted to return to the core truths to discover anew the reality of the Redeemer. And he wanted to free up, these are his words, free up the kernel of faith from encrustations and to give that kernel strength and dynamism. He said we must recognise and apply ourselves to the centuries' particular barriers to truth if we wish to clear them. Instead of truth, all around us we have truth's caricatures. Instead of knowledge, the illusion of already knowing. Only with great effort can we free ourselves from illusory knowledge. So he's the fighter of illusions, the mythbuster, And he took on all the false Christologies. How many times have we heard Jesus of history, the New Age Jesus? I've heard Jesus the psychotherapist, Jesus the meek friend, Jesus the revolutionary, the Jesus, you know, of... Um, Jesus the activist, the pri- oh, there's a pre to Jesus and the post easter to Jesus. So many titles in which um, our Redeemer has been trapped, And he took on them all, but there were three that he particularly attacked through all his writings. And one of them was the Jesus of history, another, Jesus the revolutionary, and another one was the New Age Jesus, the New Age avatar. I'll take these on in turn. The Jesus of history portraits, as we all know, they're presented as factual, um, products of the historico critical method of biblical study, which arose in the context of all the increasing archaeological and scientific discoveries in the late 18th and 19th centuries. All these studies emphasize the historically verifiable, the reasonable, factual, you know, and I always contrasted this with what we knew of the Jesus of living tradition, the Jesus of faith. You know, it was as if the Jesus of faith was just full of pious and comforting accretions, whereas they were academics, research scholars um, who could tear away these pious fantasies. In Jesus of Nazareth, um, his recent book, Benedict prefaces his critique by the method or his critique of the method by acknowledging that it is useful. He always does that with the people he attacks. He tries to see what it is they're trying to say and tries to see some good in them. He says, it remains an indispensable dimension of exegetical work. Why? Why does he praise them? Because he says, our faith really is about historical events. So you can't attack the Jesus of history people by saying you shouldn't be saying that. No. He said the encyclicals, Providentissimus Deus, 1893, Divino Afflante Spiritu in 1943, I mean, they had said, um, you know, they encouraged historical research with regard to Jesus. Um, and all of these had encouraged historical research, but he said, if you don't go along this path of historical research, you end up with Gnosticism. And with Gnosticism, we have people saying things like, um, I just know... Jesus is uh, the same as the Holy um, uh, Spirit because Jesus appears as a dove and, you know and I just know you can say things like oh you know Jesus was married and had you know five children and so you know they just know putting knowledge above um, the authenticity the factualness of Jesus's life So Benedict stresses yes the historical critical method people are right. Um, The faith is based on a factum historicum, not symbolic ciphers or concepts alone. After all, we say, et incarnatus est, and he was made flesh. When we say these words, we acknowledge God's actual entry into real history. But in Jesus of Nazareth, and his 1988 Erasmus lecture, among other works, Benedict especially launches into attack then of the Jesus of History scholars, who, as you no doubt know, were people like Adolf von Harnack from 1851 to 1930, Martin Debalius, 1883 to 1947, and Rudolf Bultmann, 1884 to 1976. And uh, there were many others as well. And they all said that the probable and the measurable are solely of value, and they relegated miracles and all the other um, traditional knowledge of the faith to the realm of myth, right? So they saw themselves as myth-busters, but Benedict is a stronger mythbuster. Benedict explains that even outstanding biblical scholars such as Schnackenberg, who he highly respects, says that they end up too dependent on the method and can be constrained by the methods. He says that in Jesus of Nazareth. He says others fuel uncertainties because they... Have, they're kowtowing to that method too much, and they leave genuine seekers really confused in endless scholarly debates and questioning. Um, the shifting hypotheses of exegetes lead to the neglect of tradition, and uh, historico critical researchers then become the highest doctrinal authority of the church, so they think. How many times I have met people who went to a local Bible study? I met one last year and she said, I came out, she said, I don't know who wrote the Gospels. After one session, they had managed to confuse her to such an extent she had no idea. Now was, I won't mention names and places, but this happens. The historical method still pervades, you know, sections of Sydney anyway. Some of the damaging legacy in undermining the traditional understanding of Christ can be seen in this written on a Jesus of History website. It says, Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God, sent to earth to die for our sins. Rather, he's one of us who as a man simply had an unusual degree of experiential contact with God. He says remarkably little about himself. Having found freedom, his only goal is to help us find it. Nonsense, but this is on a Jesus of history website. Another Jesus of history of a much higher academic calibre is a Father John Meyer, professor of New Testament at Washington's Catholic University in America, who wrote a book called Jesus, a Marginal Jew. And he says, with all his academic seriousness, you can imagine, you know, the glasses and the the cigar smoke going up in the air, he says, on painstaking deductions from the New Testament, and knowledge about the Greco-Roman cultures in which Jesus and his followers moved. Jesus was probably married, had four brothers and sisters, not cousins, and he was born in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. Now, this is Professor John Meyer from the Washington Catholic University. So you can see the influence of this historico-critical method. And that's a not-long-ago-written book. So Now, most of the Christological portraits like this who are like uh, Bult- son um, deconstruction, because Bultmann really tried to deconstruct anything miraculous or divine about Jesus. They try to make him out to be just an ordinary, regular guy you might meet on the street, first century Jewish rabbi, and we really don't know a lot about him, except that he's not the person you think he is. And uh, whatever you bring up from your knowledge, no, no, he's not like that. They'll contradict you. So after millennia of tradition, They had to deconstruct it perpetually. And Benedict says all of this, and he says then the scholars, having deconstructed Jesus, now have to do a bit of a Lego job and reconstruct him in order to explain how everything came about. And he says their sheer fantasies are based on their philosophical proclivities. And this is what Benedict says of Bultmann. If Rudolf Bultmann used the philosophy of Martin Heidegger as a vehicle to represent the biblical word, then that vehicle stands in accord with his reconstruction of the essence of Jesus' message. But was this reconstruction itself not likewise a product of his philosophy? What he's saying is that Bultmann used the philosopher Heidegger to rebuild Jesus. And he said, well, if he's accusing us of reflecting some kind of a tradition, isn't he just reflecting the tradition of the philosopher that he picked to interpret Jesus with? so he's using the weapons of these deconstructionists against them and that's uh, very clever in the way he does it and he says like in the end this historico critical method becomes a, a broad umbrella what we might call a meta method through which uh, this continual deconstruction of Christ comes and it's blind to its own philosophical assumptions benedict is not only sober and factual in his criticism, sometimes he can become very, very pointed and sharp. He actually says in his book called The Nature and Mission of Theology, published in 1993, he says, uh, Consider this passage. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Now, he says this verse doesn't refer so much to sexual abuse victims. This is what he says. He says it rather refers to victims of obfuscating theologians and exegetes who are victims of theological abuse. Now mm-hmm. oh, what an extraordinary mm-hmm. insight. And he said the people who deconstruct and obscure Christ's face. And he says in another part, and this is even more... Um, i put it, uh, you know, really kind of a dark kind of a comment. He says um, in the Erasmus Lecture, the devil presents himself as a theologian, especially one involved in biblical exegesis. And he says, no doubt, Um, he says um, that, actually he's quoting that from, uh, I don't know if you know Vladimir Solovyev. He was a 19th century writer who wrote a book called The History of the Antichrist. And he actually presents the the Antichrist as a theologian who's leading people astray. And so Pope Benedict was very, um, or Cardinal Ratzinger then, was very taken by this image. And uh, this quiet theological writer took it up. And he says this, In Vladimir Soloviev's history of the Antichrist, the enemy of the Redeemer, who recommended himself to believers, among other things, by the fact that he had earned his doctorate in theology at Tübingen oh, and had written, I mean, Matzinger had worked there, and had written an exegetical work which was recognised as pioneering in the field, here we come, the Antichrist, a famous exegete. And he's got exclamation mark. With this paradox, Soloviev sought to shed light on the ambivalence inherent in biblical exegetical methodology for almost a 100 years now. To speak of the crisis of the historico-critical method today is practically a truism. He said this despite the fact it had gotten off to so optimistic a start. Now, when you read these words, that ain't so much Mr Nice Guy. You know, the gloves are off. He worked at Tübingen Uni. He worked near Hans Kuhn. He worked with these people and he says <laughs> in this lecture, quite openly, um, referring to Solidyard's essay, you know, the Antichrist presents himself as a, a misleading and confusing theologian. I found that very powerful writing from somebody who, you know, is just seen as a quiet background figure. No, he's, this is getting right, you know, he's got his arms around the necks of the offending theologians here. Now, he says, instead of unveiling Christ, of course, the um, of the Joannine Synoptic and Pauline Christologies, um, these historico-critical people just create obstacle courses. Um, he says the method is unreasonable for several reasons. One is it highlights the word and the endless interpretations of the word as opposed to the event. He said... Ironically, this historico-critical method gets too bound up in words and doesn't focus enough on the fact that these events occurred, that the words are actually referring to the events. Um, he says that um, they're endless textual criticisms, and he says that they very paradoxically say simple accounts in the scriptures are original and believable, but complex accounts, the later Hellenic accounts, such as perhaps... St John's Gospel would be seen to be must-be mythic impositions on an earlier Semitic paradigm. I don't know if you've heard that before, but I've heard that a few times. And, um, and of course, the paradigms and myths are arranged according to the writer's taste. Now, he says to Pope Benedict that the historico-critical method is anti-historical in that it isn't open to facts. It isn't open to the unique fact of revelation, which is the basis of all Christology. It says what is factual is only what, say, positivists, positivist philosophers could say is a fact, not, um, you know, revelation breaking through into this world. And he sees the philosophical roots of historical criticism in the Kantian belief that we can't really know anything, that the thing in itself can't be known, and only the methods of natural science can be used to recreate Christ. And uh, but Pope Benedict again uses the philosophical language of the time and says, well, if we say that they're applying a hermeneutic of superstition to the facts, why can't we apply a hermeneutic of superstition of suspicion rather to them? If Heisenberg's principle said that you know when you observe an event you can, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, he said, can't we apply that to the historico-critical people? So he's using all the weapons of the intellectual life of his era against the people trying to destroy the faith. So in the spirit of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, uh, Benedict critiques the Jesus of history under two main headings in Jesus of Nazareth. Firstly, he says, you know, this historico-critical method always is focused with the past, believes the word of God in the past. It happened then, and this contradicts the gospel's claim that Jesus is the eternal logos, not confined to time. The scriptures read out beyond the past, beyond the moment, and he says a voice greater than man's echoes in scripture's human words. Jesus' revelation of God did explode all existing categories and could only be understood in the light of the mystery of God. His life transcends time. One must look at it uh, in the total movement of history and in the light of history's central event. So true Christology requires openness to divine revelation. That's a fact in itself. And as Heisenberg stated, to the human predisposition to perceive the reality in the manner suited to the knower. So he said, take that into account. And then he says, and related to this first problem, the second limitation of Jesus of history portraits are that it just sees them as human words. So it's really related to that first point. And that leaves out the total claim that Jesus makes all through that he came to do his Father's will. So how can you um, say that they're simply human words? No other human being has made that claim that I'm here to do the Father's will. And he says, one cannot strip the holy other, the mysterious, the divine, from this uh, individual. Without this element, the person of Jesus himself dissolves. So that's you know crucial to it. Now, in Jesus of Nazareth, our Pope Benedict recounts a very beautiful story of a Jewish uh, scholar, Jacob Neusser. I don't know if any of you have read the book and about this uh, Jewish scholar, because Rabbi Neusser said, OK, I'll read the full Gospels. I'll read them with an open mind, I won't go in with all my prejudices. I'll just go in and see how it strikes me. And he reads them and he finishes and he says um, to the Catholic scholars, you know, what I keep getting out of the New Testament is this person of Christ himself. That's what really strikes me. He said all the way through from beginning to end. It's unique. And he said, I can't believe it the rabbi said, but I can see it. And Benedict says, listen, if a Jewish scholar can see it who doesn't believe it, why can't Christians who are supposed to be Catholics see it? And uh, he says, Jesus understands himself as the Torah, the word of God in person. Harnack and the liberal exegetes went wrong in thinking that um, Christ is not part of the gospel about Jesus for the Son. Christ is not part of the gospel. The truth is he's always at the centre of it. And see, Rabbi Neusser saw that the claim was so radical, the centre and living unity of the Old and the New Testament, that he was overwhelmed. So overwhelmed he said, I just can't accept it. It's just too extraordinary. It's too remarkable. He said, it's not a claim that Buddha, Muhammad, or any other religious leader ever made. So Benedict uses the rabbi's fresh observations to myth-bust historical deconstruction. And he reminds us that humble submission to the sources of the word um, dynamically unveil Jesus. He who sees Christ truly sees the Father in the visible is seen the invisible one. Now that's uh, one myth he deconstructs. A second one is Jesus the revolutionary. Now we've all grown up with this you may not think you've grown up with Jesus, the revolutionary myth around you, but uh, every time you've seen over activist people on social justice committees, you know, pushing forward to you know, the world revolution, you've been living with it. Um, in, it's been there in liberation theology in its most dramatic form, but most recently all around us in feminist and eco-theology, which are offshoots of it. Leonard Boff, who you may have heard of, was one of the great exponents of liberation theology. He said that Christ was a politician first and foremost. He says, when we talk about Jesus Christ, the liberator, certain preliminaries must be noted. Liberation is the opposite correlate of domination. Such a Christology entails a specific socio-political commitment to break with the situation of oppression. Imagine the mouthist and the you know jungle greens and you know him, you know forging on for liberation so this is political theology political Christology and Bo's view was representative of liberation theologians who portray Jesus as one of the oppressed against the oppressor all living under Western society you know judeo-christian Western society um and capitalism, especially you know in Latin America. Somehow Bob's view never extended to the Soviet Union. Bit of a blind spot there, except to praise it. Um, according to Bob's Christology in Jesus Christ the Liberator, the Gospels are liberative dimensions in Jesus's historical discourse. He says eradicating political and economic depression should be the church's first aim. And about 1917 and the communist revolution, he said, it marked something new in the history of humanity, and in spite all the contradictions, you know a lot of good came out of it. That's what he said. And actually, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, he uh, I think got rid of him, you know, I think he was um suspended from his priesthood by Cardinal Ratzinger. Anyway, he keeps talking about um, the revolution and, of course, for Boff, it was never the incarnation, the cross or resurrection, but it was the anti-capitalist political struggle. Now, we might think that, you know, Jesus the revolutionary, the Che Guevara hat, with these priests, you know, with the guns and jungle greens is all a bit dated since the form of fall of communism in 1991, but not so. This essential Christological distortion endures wherever you find an overemphasis On activism in the church, you know that you've got to change the structures of the church. You've got to kind of liberate women and let them all up onto the sanctuary because they've been oppressed in the pews for centuries. All of this thinking—it's a kind of a crypto, crypto Marxism, a crypto liberation talk—and it always is at the expense of the contemplative dimension. Just to give you another recent example of this, there's a Catholic bishop, Miguel. Escoto Brockman, and he was recently elected president of Nicaragua. No kidding. He's now president of Nicaragua. Bishop. And he also talks... Sorry, one He's been laicized. Paraguay, Paraguay, sorry. Sorry, it was Paraguay. You're right, thank you. Yes, and uh, he keeps talking about the West's morass of selfishness, individualism and difference and, you know, talks in Marxist terms. Now, the Church had a problem because a priest and a bishop can't be in a political role. And uh, he's, I think, I don't know if he's the very first, but he's certainly one of the few bishops who's ever been laicised. That has actually happened. I read it yesterday that he has actually, the Vatican has declared him now laicised. So he's a bishop who's been laicised because he's not going to let go of his political role And the Vatican reluctantly has declared that uh, he's laicised because he cannot continue to be a president of Paraguay and a bishop at the same time. So the problem persists in our era, and I think there are plenty of headaches for the Vatican with people like this. Now, we might think um, that it's all over, as I said, but it's not. We've got a plethora of books coming at us, Jesuit Father Peter McVerry's recent book, 2008, was entitled Jesus, the Social Revolutionary. I mean, very fresh in in the thinking of a lot of people. And the whole book is a call to alleviate visible political social injustice. It also manifests itself in the catechetical works of somebody like Thomas Groom, Professor of Theology and Religious Education at Boston College. He's the author of several religious education programs directed at youth. Some of them entitled Sharing Faith, a Comprehensive Approach to Religious Education and Pastoral Ministry. ministry. Another one, The Way of Shared Praxis. Huh? When you hear this word praxis, your little Marxist kind of uh, dust detectors should be going no. off, because that's a, a lovely crypto Marxist word, you know, praxis. And Gru, who greatly admired the Marxists' poll of And Antonio Gramsci, he was the founder of the Italian Communist Party. I'm not inventing this, I'm just reporting it. This is true. You know, uh, Groom gave the name shared Christian praxis to his catechetical method. And he said, I contend that the essential characteristic of all education is that it's political activity. So there you are. Professor Groom said that it must be true. So religious education programs, according to Groom and others like him, must present Christ as politically involved in uh, achieving a kingdom of this world, emphasising orthopraxis over orthodoxy. Groom never questions why Christ didn't lead an uprising against the Romans, nor why he stated to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, John chapter 18, verse 36. And Catholics have been too respecting of people um, with high degrees, who have you know have promoted uh, ideologies that are contrary to Catholicism, you know they rightly have a respect for authority because the church is hierarchical. But when that translates into respect for what any professor says, it can lead to disastrous consequences. Um, I know from the field of work in which I'm in, um, I'm a psychologist by training. You know, respecting all these Uh, People who are professors of theology, you can't do it because you're then, you know, respecting people have views antithetical to your faith. But a lot of young Catholics go and get that kind of secular mould and then have to spend years coming out of it. And what's happened here, though, this is at the heart of the church. This is in catechetical programs. And, of course, Catholics are very loath to criticise the efforts of people. And so when you've got... People teaching catechetics and they're using these quasi-Marxist programs, they think it's a bit unchurlish or uncharitable to criticise. But these people um, do have an effect. And there are places that use these programs, and I'm not going to name names. <laughs> they do. And Benedict echoes Pope John Paul II's warnings of the danger of some theologians who uncritically adopt the methods of Marxism. And he and JP, too, were comrades and they were real mates in this. Um, he says, you know, it's a whole lot of middle-class Western political theorists with a glass of Bollinger in one hand and, you know, cafe latte in the other, spouting all these ideas. And he says, they're all outdated. He calls, you know, um, the Enlightenment and Marxism, you know, worn-out steam engines. He says, they all come from the 19th century, Feuerbach, Engels, Marx, Lenin. And he says... You know, when Marxists declare that the spiritual life and metaphysics are dead, paradoxically, they make quasi-metaphysical claims in saying that Marxist praxis is right. But if something's right, it must be good. Then you have to explain, well, why is it good? And what is good? But you see, that area is never dealt with. And that's the inherent contradiction in these, um, you know, praxis enthusiasts. Now, Benedict contends that the Marxist-based Christology of Jesus the revolutionary is in large part a faulty interpretation of the kingdom. It's a humanly fought-for kingdom in their view. So said liberation's uh, theologi- theological principles undergird the faith in scientific progress. So it's not only the utopia of political paradise, but it's sort of a technological utopia now. And uh, in Spe Salvi that marvellous encyclical, he dealt with this uh, point of you know creating the human paradise on earth, which we are living with at the moment. It's one of the poisonous, pervading, secular winds of our Western society. And uh, he always distinguishes the secular utopia from the true kingdom of God. And he says, quoting Adorno, faith in progress is progress from the sling to the atom bomb. Now, we've got still some of these you know, jungle green revolutionaries but really the liberation type of person has morphed into the scientist in a white coat who's doing experiments on you know embryonic stem cells that's the new type of uh, you know liberation revolutionary sort of a person and uh, you know the the Catholics who will try to justify some of these things uh, or just close their eyes to it really had misunderstood um, Christ and and the law he brought. As Tracy Rowland points out, progress is interpreted as the application of scientific principles to overcome various forms of human dependency. Euthanasia, IVF cloning and genetic engineering are all victories over such dependencies in the kingdom of man. So communism lives on because communism said you could live without God And of course, our technological utopia says you can live without God. So it's morphed into another form. Actually, one fellow I read um, called, I think it was Cashel. David Cashel said communism's greatest success was in the West, not in the East. He made that claim because in the West, um, people never recognized the attack of the godless ideology. It came in very subtle forms and that the West has taken it on even more strongly than the East, where you always had this recognition that there was an ideology there trying to control them, whereas we had the illusion that we're free in the West, and yet pervaded by this idea that we can live in a godless world. Um, but this is what Pope Benedict says in the Introduction to Christianity. He says, basically, the Marxist doctrine of salvation has taken a stand as the sole ethical motivated guide to the future that was at the same time consistent with a scientific worldview. Therefore, after the shock of 1989, it did not simply abdicate. We need only to recall how little was said about the communist gulag. For it was about justice for all, about peace, about doing away with unfair master-servant relationships and so on. And Pope Benedict saying that's lived on, the ideas have morphed and they persist. And he says challenging this false utopianism and optimism, he says, has to come about with representing the true traditional understanding of Christ's kingdom. He says the term kingdom occurs 122 times in the New Testament. And he says uh, it has three dimensions. First, following Origen's understanding of Jesus as the ultra-basilea, the kingdom in person a veiled Christology of Christ in person. He says the second is an idealistic mystical interpretation. And then he says thirdly, the current dominant ecclesiastical interpretation usurped by those who have espoused liberation theology, and that is, you know, activism in the church and ecclesi- you know um, the ecclesial dimension. In technical political struggles, Benedict says, we're falling prey to the devil's temptation to feed the world with bread and bread alone. And he said, in the end, you don't give bread if you try to give bread alone. He said, you don't feed people with anything. He said, what remained with the figure of Jesus, who of course no longer appeared now as the Christ, but rather as the embodiment of all the suffering and oppressed as their spokesman, and who calls us to rise up to change society, What was new in all this was that the program of changing the world, which in Marx's view was intended not to be only atheistic, but also anti-religious, was now filled with religious passion and was based on religious principles. So a new reading of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and uh, and a liturgy that was celebrated as a symbolic fulfilment of the revolution and the preparation for it. Now, why did such a false Christology about the kingdom arise? Well, Benedict says in recent times, part of it is that in post-Vatican II years, there was a desire within the Catholic Church to emerge from the ghetto and to become involved in the world at large. I mean, people had seen the sufferings of the war, World War One, World War Two. There was a kind of a collective post-traumatic stress disorder in Europe, you could say, and people wanted to do something. He unequivocally supported this desire to change from static to a more immediate response to glaring injustice. He says something had to be done, and he saw it himself in the aftermath of World War II. However, he saw the problem that in searching for an active Galvanic Christianity, you can easily fall into a power Christianity. That's behind a lot of what... You know, the women who want power in the church is about... It's not about really women, it's about this political power idea. And uh, recasting Christ as a socio-political, busy, busy activist, as one of the masses striving for material justice and a sustainable lifestyle, it emanatises heaven on earth and it ignores the divinity and the cross, and you know, sidelines that contemplative dimension and it leads to a reduction in Christ's significance, and it moves increasingly to what he calls regnocentric kingdom, where man creates paradise on earth, and where God looks on, but is not really all that needed. If you accept this view, Benedict laconically remarks, it looks as if missionary work is no longer necessary. Our favourite biblical analogy by the Jesus, the revolutionary people, is the Exodus, because you see, The Jews were liberated, of course, for political freedom, in their view. But the Jews were liberated not for political freedom, Benedict says. It wasn't for political and material reasons. It wasn't to get away from the Egyptians whipping them. It was so they would be free to worship God. He says there's a proper ordering of life which puts God at the apex. Otherwise, true humanism will not occur. And uh, just as Jesus replied to the devil's mocking challenge to turn stones into bread. So Benedict replies that the very justice sought for in the name of Jesus the revolutionary will not happen for it ignores God and if it ignores God, it ignores Christ and it will ultimately ignore man who needs more than bread. In the Ratzinger report, Benedict says this dubious Christology of Jesus the revolutionary means a return to the realm of the Aryan heresy denying Christ's divinity. And Tracy Rowland says of this point, he, Benedict, doesn't think with sufficient education the new Jerusalem can be built on earth. Civics education alone, lectures on human rights, exhortations about brotherly love and the common good will get nowhere unless people are open to the work of grace and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. A humanism that's not Christian cannot save the world. And uh, he says the greatest revolution is, well, the greatest exodus is from sin. That's the true Christological exodus. And from inordinate love of self, which exists in all of us and is very deceptive and takes a life to kind of exit from. Only in imitating Christ's self-giving, his relatedness to suffering humanity, his constant communion with the Father, can the radical alienation at the core of man be reversed? Christ broke the dominance of sin's alienation in descending to hell. Benedict points out that this being for others is the model for engaging with the world. It must begin in Christ. He says there's only one legitimate form of the church's openness to the world and mission. You know, it's the simple gesture of disinterested serving love in actualising its source divine love. A love which streams forth even when it remains without response. And he says the greatest, the deepest revolution of human history is experienced, and these are his words, precisely when we are gathered around the Eucharist. Here people of different ages, sex, social condition and political ideas gather and we become one in him. Now, that's part of his criticism on this Jesus, the revolution. When we come to Jesus, the New Age avatar, you would think, gosh, does he write about this? My goodness, does he ever. He's extraordinary in his criticism of the New Age spiritualism, Gnosticism and eco-fundamentalist sort of writings in recent years that have produced counterfeit Christologies. In this portrayal, this false Christology, Jesus is seen as a yogi. He's an ascended master, one attaining to higher gnosis, but definitely not the son of God. A popular example, which you will find in this multi-million dollar popular writer, is Deepak Chopra's book, 2008. It's been published. And what's the title? The Third Jesus, the Christ We Cannot Ignore. And he says, What makes Jesus the son of God was the fact he had achieved God-consciousness. Now, you may think, what rubbish, but there are a lot of people out there reading this and thinking, oh, that's a new way of looking at it. You know, they're very easily influenced. Now, the notion of Jesus' progression in knowledge, of course, denies his uniqueness. But In Truth and Tolerance, Pope Benedict um, says that uh, it's influenced people even in the clergy. He says, um, and he actually takes us as an example, actually a Presbyterian minister, who goes to India to come and see Jesus in terms of Eastern religions. He dons all the red robes and all this, and he says, I'm really going to try to weld East and West. And uh, Benedict says, that identification of Jesus with reality itself, with the living God, was now rejected as a relapse into myth. Jesus was consciously relativized, reduced to one religious genius among others. So... In this view, the New Age Jesus is allowed to think he's God, but it's not a statement of objective reality. Jesus does what all the New Age avatars do. He rises to enlightenment, overcomes subjective consciousness, merges with the force in the universe. Benedict uses, he merges with the cosmic dance. I mean, he's got this very lively choice of words. You know, I particularly like it. And um, he sees this as a resurgent Gnosticism. Now see how through all the modern heresies he's seeing the ancient one comes, come up right from his earliest writings in the 60s. He criticised Pelagianism. In Jesus the Revolutionary he criticises Arianism. And now in the New Age Jesus he brings up Gnosticism as the danger. And the Gnostics, the New Age people, are always saying they know something, as I said before. They just know. You say, so how do you know? Don't bother me with questions like that. I just know. And um, he says that under this purported veneer of tolerance that New Ages have, like everything's one, you know, yin, yang, we're all together and all of this, he has, actually, they're very intolerant because they're tolerant of everything except the possibility of the reality of Christ's revelation. And he says, actually, it's an elimination of Christology that the New Ages are about. And he says that this uh, Presbyterian minister who tried to blend Eastern mysticism and uh, and Christianity is really a kind of a symptom of the sickness of post-metaphysical kind of Europe. You know, because he says they're going into this negative theology of Asia. When I say negative theology, um, you know, in Buddhism or in Hinduism, I mean, God is really, or any notion of a deity is so unknowable, you can know nothing about him, totally inscrutable. I mean, if you talk about Kant and the unknowable Numenon, I mean, this is even way beyond that. You can't even know anything much at all about it, which is a contradictory point when you think of it, because in the end you say that you know that. <laughs> sure. That's another question. Um, reality and contradictions, whether Hegelian or otherwise, don't matter really for um, the new Age so-called theologians. What matters, on the surface, as they' stated, aim is to be tolerant to all, to avoid fundamentalism, and that boils down to any claim for objective reality. And, uh, he's wrote this marvellous book called "Truth and Tolerance," um, and in it is a very good critique of new Age thinking. And his experiences with New Age ideas, and uh, yeah, I I found was like for me it was almost like like an Agatha Christie. Just couldn't put it down because his you know front line confrontation with it in the church as well as without. um, Truth and tolerance. Truth and tolerance. Tolerance. Yes. And um, now the denial of reality through the New Age denies Christianity as the religion of the Logos, that's the religion according to true reason, because, of course, the New Age is against reason. It's against us using our minds. It's not only against a whole lot of other things, but it's against the actual function of our minds. Um, It denies that we can know um, God through reason and, uh, you know, Catholicism, if anything, is the religion of reason. Um, And Pope Benedict explains that despite the New Age Christology's denial of orthodoxy, it ironically merges this New Age Christ with the Liberation Christ. And how does it do that? Because both love external ritual. You know, they love the the kind of little clanging bells and the crystals and the candles. And of course, the Liberation theologians love their Kalashnikovs and their, you know, you know, all the external symbols. And he says, and this is, again, I thought a stunning insight of Pope Benedict, he said, uh, you know, while Hicks's Hinduized Christ emphasises ritualistic orthopraxis at the expense of orthodoxy, liberation theology emphasises political orthopraxy. And that's why liberation theology is having such an entree into the Eastern world. So, you know, that kind of emphasis on orthopraxy, you'll find that in India, That in some sections of India they quite go for this liberation theology. And, uh, you know, in the end, Pope Benedict says, What did Jesus actually bring? He says the answer is very simple God. He's brought God. He challenges, you know, Chopra, he challenges Harnack, you know, and he says, We've got to get back to the language of proclamation. To the language of appealing to the intrinsic authority of God's truth. You know, we've got to kind of find a, a language of um, you know, like, I don't mean to be offensive, but like like a polite offence, you know, in the sense of a, a a take on these delusions and false Christologies head on. As I said, all these delusions, false Christologies, disguise ancient heresies. Arianism, Pelagianism, and Gnosticism. They reduce or eliminate the very claim Christ made, that he was God revealing man to himself, and not by means of interfaith committees, but by proclamation of a unique, irrevocable fact. Once Christ fades from consciousness, and you get Christ amnesia, as we have in the world today. You know, man just feels he's free to create paradise on earth and he inevitably forgets the relatedness to God. And Pope Benedict says, you know, in the current society, he says, in order to be free, man must let even himself be abolished. The gods are returning. They have become more credible than God himself. A very interesting way of putting it. And he says, "When when man forgets the Trinity and Christ, he forgets himself because Christ fully reveals man to himself. He claims that the doc- these documents of Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, and Day Verbum," are yet to be understood. They have never really been properly interpreted. And he says re- an essential prerequisite to such understanding um, is really to apply some theological smelling salts to people who have forgotten who Christ is, because he said, we have been assaulted by the most extraordinary series of illusions and deceptions, not only a century of wars, but a century of theological assaults on our minds and pervasive ones. So in a book called The Values in the Time of Upheaval, Pope Benedict says the true meaning of a pope's teaching authority, one of the aspects of it, is that he is an advocate of Christian memory, an interesting term. He's an advocate of Christian memory. He's saying that what we do as human beings is forget, you know, the truths we've been given. And he says that Pope must remind people of what the kernel, you know, of what the core, core truths of the faith are. That you know, homoousios homo means of one being with the Father, and that will never change, nor will it ever change. Pope Benedict, in my view, is a persistent reawakener, a tender healer of lost memories. He's uh, treating our Christoamnesia in the world. And he's teaching us how to speak of Christ in speaking simply, clearly, and with a very lively series of expressions. He debunks defective Christologies. And he's saying that doing this is really essential to a daring Christological renewal. So... That critique in itself is part of his method. He agrees with Guardini, no psychological portrait could ever render Christ's features fully comprehensible from a human perspective, but he says, don't ever doubt, he says, Christ still speaks across centuries, cultures, and class differences. And he says, the faith will always have a chance no matter what happens, because it corresponds to the nature of man to seek Christ and to see his face. So when John records Christ saying, now that you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the words are to be taken for what they are. Jesus truly revealing the Father, revealing himself as God, and revealing his eternal love in coming to meet us. And uh, in the nature and mission of theology, Benedict tells us, go back to the scriptures. He said how stimulating and how wonderful it would be to renew the quest For Christ, who is not portrayed in this or that presumed source, but in the real New Testament itself. So what he is advocating is a non-conformism to the spirit of the age. Not a negative, passive one, but a kind of, as I said before, offensive and a creative sense of openness to Scripture, to the transcendent. And uh, he writes about it so lucidly and in a memorable way, and uh, he highlights all the beautiful Christologies, such as in the Beatitudes, he says, which are a roadmap of the church. He says, The longing for the infinite is alive and unquenchable in man. And he said, Only the God who himself became infinite corresponds to the question that our being asks. He said, It's Christ who will last, not Christophobia. And he says, that speaks more eloquently amongst the rusting ideological deceptions of the current era. He said to the young seminarians in his recent Dunwoody address, to see his face is a discovery of the one who never fails us, the one whom we can always trust. In seeking truth, we come to live by belief, because ultimately truth is a person, Jesus Christ. That's it. Okay. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Ms. Wanda Skavonska For more interviews, talks and shows visit